Thank you for downloading and or streaming another bonus episode of Recasted 2.0. I'm your host, Wayne G, and today I am joined by a very special guest, a multiple Emmy Award winner, a Hollywood screenwriter, director, and producer, and a man who wrote the book, literally, on filmmaking, Shane Stanley. Thank you for joining the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Good morning. Definitely pleased to have you. I know you're on the West Coast, so it's definitely nice to have you nice and early. We're on the left coast, as they like to say back there. Yeah, we're three hours behind you. How How is today going so far? Today's going great and a beautiful day here. When I say beautiful day, it's different than out in California. Like here, a beautiful day is like 55 degrees. Yeah, where are you located exactly in the east? In New Hampshire. Oh, wow. Well, that's a beautiful part of the country. New England, Patriots fan. So. Hey, man, that's awesome. Well, I'm a Bears fan, which took a lot of heart away from you New England guys in the 80s. But boy, have you made up for it. I do have some questions for Shane about movie making, but before I dive in, please make sure you are following the show on social media. We are on Twitter at Recasted Podcast. We are on TikTok at Recasted Podcast. We are on Instagram at Recasted Podcast 8 and on Facebook at Recasted Podcast with a public group, All Things Movies, where you can join and interact with all sorts of pop culture. Also, please be sure to visit the website, recastedpodcast.com. We have a store there with some movie merchandise that you cannot find anywhere else. Shane, the first thing I did want to ask, and I ask all our guests this, is to tell us your origin story. How did you get started in filmmaking and what the journey looked like from then until now? I became the baby of Century 21, worked with that, and became this on-camera kid for several years, worked as an actor, hated it, missed being with my friends, hated leaving to go to set on a Tuesday afternoon in the summer, watching all my friends play and having to drive somewhere, and left that and started learning about behind the scenes. You know, my father had transitioned into becoming a very successful documentary and industrial filmmaker. So we had all the junk in the house, the, the movieolas, the, the 16 millimeter Ari cameras and all the goodies. And I learned how to use it all before I was, you know, 10 years old and started helping him on his films and really just kind of fell in love with the creative process. You know, we didn't have computers back then. So it was kind of neat to watch my father break down things and strip boards where they were actually boards that took up the entire dining room table and budgeting and going out and casting and building these things. And I just got really excited by that and knew that was something that I wanted to do. And then as you started to kind of get more into, again, from doing the home videos thing to kind of getting into like professionally made movies and TV shows, I guess, did it ever stop not being fun? I guess I, I always feel like when you do something you love as a job, it stops being a little bit as fun. It stops being fun when it becomes very micromanaged by suits. I, I've been very fortunate for the last, you know, 15, 20 years, with the exception of when we did Gridiron Gang, which was a project we did with The Rock that was actually placed at Columbia Pictures back in the early 90s. It just took forever to get it made. I find that the more bureaucratic people are involved, the more unfun it is. And when you're able to work with people you love, and the people that you consider your film family, it's nothing but fun. I mean, the worst day on set is better than a day at Disneyland, as far as I'm concerned, when you're with people you love and doing what you love to do. And it never became unfun until people really find a way to make it unfun. And I think, sadly, it translates through the entire process, from the script process to the casting process to the hiring of the director your vendors, your day players, your costume designers, everybody involved in the creative. I think shit rolls downhill. And I, I'm not trying to poo-poo Hollywood proper, but that's really why I've kind of abandoned it is it wasn't fun for me anyway. I just, to me, it's if you're not having a good time in life, what's the point? 
And uh, for me, it, I, I had to find a way to, to have fun doing what I do. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today is because you have worn a number of different hats in the industry. The most intriguing to me is producer. You know, at the start of any movie we see produced by James Cameron or executive producer Danny DeVito. And I'm curious, what exactly does a producer do on a film and where would the audience see their fingerprint on the movie? You know, that's a great question. I, I learned from Neil Moritz, who's one of the most prolific producers in town. You know, Neil's done Fast and Furious, SWAT, and, you know, all the 21 Jump Streets. And I talk about this in my book. I sat down with Neil and I really wanted to become a producer and said, Neil, I want to produce. How do I do this? And, and he said, well, there's two kinds of producers. He said, there's the guy like me, meaning him, that can pick up a phone, read a great script and say, hey, I'm going to get Jennifer Aniston, I'm going to get Brad Pitt or Will Smith or whoever, and I'm going to put it with this studio and we're going to package it. They're going to finance it. They're going to distribute it. And, and that's all done really with phone calls and great lunch meetings. And that's the hell of a place to be in this industry. That's a powerful mover and shaker. And then there, he said, there are the other kind of guys, Shane, that you know are probably more your speed, that have got great connections and vendors and crew locations and you're smart with money and you can budget and you can get things for a dime that should cost you 20 bucks. And he said, those are the two kind of producers. And what I've tried to do is kind of merge that because we kind of are our own game. So it, it's become finding the money. It's become finding the distribution. It's become finding the cast. It's become finding the right idea for a writer to do, you know, whether it's CJ Wally or something that I've written in the past and figuring out a way to get it done. So what I've, I've done is learn to kind of merge all that. A lot of times producers will get their name put on something, no disrespect, but you think about somebody like Steven Spielberg, who's only an executive producer on a project where he's not directing it or he didn't write it or come up with the story where it becomes namesake. It becomes, you know, branding rights basically for a producer to get paid a lot of money to put their fingerprint on it. And you know, when Steven Spielberg puts his name on a film, I think you kind of know what you're going to get. And it's very rare that you're going to be disappointed. A lot of people don't think about what the producer does. Um, a lot of times it's bringing the money, it's bringing the talent, it's bringing the idea, it's bringing the universe. There's a lot of different hats producers can wear. Yeah, I think the peak that I got behind the curtain, if that's what you want to call it, was I watched the entire season of The Offer, right, which was about the making of The Godfather. And we got to see Miles Teller play Al Ruddy and how he was working to get that film produced. And his whole job was, one, pitch it to the studio, make sure that they want to do it. Two, make sure it doesn't get, like, canned. Like, you have to keep on the people at the studio. Like, we really want to make this. We need extra money. We need to do whatever. And then he seemed to really basically put a lot into the hands of Francis Ford Coppola. He was like, whatever you want, let me know. I'll get it for you. And I figured, how realistic is that as, like, a producer? You know, it's funny. You should talk to Jonathan Arnold. He's, he's one of my entertainment lawyers. Jonathan's father was the first AD for Coppola during those years. Did Godfather 2. I know that. Did a lot of big films. And it's funny because Jonathan has said a lot of what you see in the offer was true. I also knew Frankie Ablons, who's a studio head, who kind of greenlit the film. And I, I haven't seen the offer. I'd like to. There are what directors will call a director's producer. I've worked for them. It's wonderful when you have a producer who will literally say, whatever you need, you have it. Um, it's rare, especially in the indie world, because you're constantly moving money from one department to another, trying to make this work. You know, you, you may have a, one of your picture cars break down where, you know, if you're doing a real studio film, when your cars break down, it's fine. You've got five or six other ones 
that looked just like it. You know, I remember when I used to do studio films, we'd have six or seven of our hero cars. It was crazy. When you do the films that we do, I've never told myself, we'll give you whatever you want. It's always been, you know, I always go to a, a film kind of saying that don't tell me what I need to make it. Just tell me how much I've got and we'll figure it out. And, and that's what we do. Studios take a different approach, which is, you know, God love them. They got endless resources and that's great. But for us, it's always been, what can we put on the screen and, and what do we have to do it? And if we don't have enough, we'll figure out a way. And I guess I'd love to talk about, because you said when you were asking about becoming a produ producer, my question is, what traits or skills are necessary to be a Hollywood producer? I can't imagine you need to know a lot of the creative stuff, like camera angles and stuff like that. There's more, it sounds more like financial stuff you need to know. You know, I think the more somebody knows, the better, but then there's also knowing too much to be dangerous. I've worked with producers that know enough to be dangerous, where they can be very detrimental to a project because they think they know enough. I think important when you work in certain aspects of this business, you need to compartmentalize and really rely on people that know the craft. I think for a producer, it's as Neil said when I first met with him, for him, it's finding that needle in a haystack. It's finding that product that's like, oh my God, we've got fast and furious. We're going to make you know this or that. And I think you need to understand money. It's like when I asked Neil, how can I be a successful producer? What he did is he threw me a, a budget for a film he was doing at the time that may have been Volcano or something. It was like this first $100 million film he was doing. And he threw, me the, he threw me the budget and he said, learn what every single item on this thing does. Just go do it. And I literally spent the next two years cold calling people and saying, hey, I need to get some work as an AC. I need to get some work as a rigger. I need to get some work as a dolly grip. I need to get some work as a caterer. Because what I decided for me was I need to know what every job does. So when I ask somebody to do it, there's two things that happen. Number one, I know exactly how much that's going to cost to do. And I also will never ask anybody on a set to do something I haven't done myself. And that to me was very important. I never want to be the guy asking people or telling people to do something that I haven't done myself. And I also know when I budget something out, what it's going to take, what it's going to cost. Don't tell me to pre-light this room is going to take 12 people in three days when I know it could be done with four people in a day and a half. And that's what Hollywood proper has gotten used to is overpaying to get stuff done. And I think being a good producer is having connections, relationships with crew and cast and financing and distribution, vendors, surrounding themselves with good people. And that's really all it is. It's just leadership. It's leadership from behind the scenes. It's leadership from the get-go, putting the right elements together. Because producers play such a large role in what movies do get made, you're probably the best person to ask for these next two questions. The first one I have is, why is there a lack of originality in Hollywood? So I recently was on a show and I took the last four years of the top 10 grossing movies. So 40 movies total. Right. Only one of them was original. And when I say original, what I mean is not a remake, not a sequel or prequel, not a comic book movie. And, and then I go back to the 90s when I was a teenager, like 96, 97, 98, 99, 30 out of 40 were original movies. So why has it trended that way? Well, I think it's because attention span. I, when I did Gridiron Gang, I was working with Amy Pascal, who was just an outstanding leader. I know she got bumped off because of probably calling somebody a brat or doing something she shouldn't have done, but who cares? Amy and I talked a lot about that trend because it was the early 2000s. You know, I was there at the studio from like 04 to 06. 
And that's when you were really starting to see a surgence of these superhero movies coming out. And this, the sequel, prequel, and remake thing was really getting pushed from every angle. And I remember her and I talking one day, and I said to her, I said, so when is this fat going to end? And she said, it ain't. She said, it's not going to. I'll tell you why. She said, when we make a sequel, prequel, or remake, you got to keep in mind that the cost of the studio temple is just going up and up and up. You know, they were at the 100 million mark, 120 million mark then. Now it's 200 million. And she said, so much of the money that goes into a film is, is P&A. It's, it's prints and advertising. It's branding. It's everything. She said, as technology gets better, and she wasn't wrong, as technology advances, our attention span is going to become less and less. It's going to be harder to brand. It's going to be harder to awaken a society on an idea. It's going to be hard to instill passion or interest in something. She said, we're already being gifted 30 to $50 million in P&A for free. And that... I never forgot that. So you have to think about that. There's got to be some truth to that. Yeah, you do get these gems that sneak through the cracks that are original, but you're going to be seeing the, the you know, everybody thinks this superhero craze is going to go away. I can assure you it's not anytime soon. I just wonder because I'm a huge movie fan, have been since I was little. My mom owned a video store back when people owned video stores. Oh, wow. <laughs> that must have been cool. That must have been cool. It was great. And, and I always tell people, and not to make them feel bad, but I, said, I didn't really have any friends in school growing up. So my summers were spent watching six movies a day or seven movies a day, you know? How, how was everybody not wanting to be your friend? We all befriended this poor girl, Carrie Garcia, because she worked at a video store. She was our best friend. Yeah, I don't know. There was, and it was, my mom's business did really well, and people were fighting to get reservations for the new, when Wayne's World came out, they were trying to oh, get Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember. I remember how cool was that. And I remember being a filmmaker in the 90s. Um, late 80s and 90s when we were printing money because you would make these deals with Blockbuster and Hollywood Video and all the mom and pop brick and mortar stores. You would make DVD and VHS deals that were just astronomical. Those deals are gone. You know, it's really sad. It's really sad. I miss those days. I think the best example of that too is I, I do remember when she would talk to me about some of the business things. One year for Christmas, I remember I wanted the movie Blue Chips with Shaquille O'Neal and Nick Nolte. Yeah, and Nick Nolte. As yeah. a big basketball fan. And so I was like, yeah, can you get me the movie Blue Chips on VHS, right? And uh, <laughs> the VHS for Blue Chips costs like $129. And costs them about $3 to make. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's. Those are the days guys like me miss that were around back then because we would make these indie films that would, would be made between five and $15 million and you knew you would pre-sell the home video rights on a film like that for 11, $12 million for you actually went and made the film. Right. Those days are gone. Those days are gone. And it's, it's a shame. Everything's gone to streaming and we've just become such a digital world and without getting into that whole thing, it's not a boo hoo thing. I do miss going to a video store and looking at the wall. I really do. I miss it. My wife and I will be here 20, 21 years now. I miss those days walking into Blockbuster and Hollywood video with her perusing and each of us showing up with three movies and figuring out which two we were going <laughs> to see this weekend. My sister had one of those Blockbuster, like unlimited rental cards. Oh, she had the real packs. Yeah, anytime I would visit her, I would just be like, all right, we're renting movies all week. <laughs> <laughs> she had the real pass. I like that. <laughs> all right. So how do bad movies get made? Because I'm thinking as a producer, a script comes across and it's called Vampire Deathbed. You know, oh, shit. how does that movie get made and funded? You know, it's really interesting. And I've been guilty of making bad movies. Nobody's above it. I mean, even Spielberg's had a turd float down the, the pike. You know, I mean, nobody's perfect, but there are a lot of people that capitalize on making 
I call them D movies. I don't even think they're B movies. And it doesn't necessarily mean they're bad, but I know what you're talking about. How does anything get made? Well, it's balls and passion, man. It's somebody who believes. It's somebody that sells an idea. A film is just a widget. And if you can sell an investor on the idea of, hey, let's get something made, it's going to be campy. It's going to be cheesy. But I think people get together and they say, look, we're not going to make the next sling blade. We're not going to make the next sideways. But boy, we can do a really bad Sharknado or we can do a really crappy, rocky horror. And I think there's a market for really bad. And I'll tell you why I know this. I had a friend, without mentioning names, he sunk 600 grand into a film he was sold on because they wanted to use his wife. He was a rich guy. His wife was in an acting class. And this guy saw them come in hook, line, and stinker and made it sound like he had almost a green light on this, but the money fell through. And knowing this woman's husband was a multi-billionaire. And he said, God, you would have been perfect for the lead. And she went home and said, honey, this guy had this movie. It was this close to getting made. And oh, he's, uh, I'd be great for the lead. Well, long story, way too long. She showed up at the acting class next week and said, how much money do you need? My husband wants to see this get made. And he was like, oh, I only need a half a million dollars. And two weeks later, contracts were drawn up. They were in pre-production and making this movie. I mean, this is how stuff gets done. He got the movie made. He had a couple of names in it. Nobody that would knock you out of your seat. And it was so bad, it was bad. It wasn't like it was so bad, it was good. It was so bad, it was bad. And with his connections, I remember he invited us to a screening. The president of Universal Pictures was there. And the, the film was so bad, it was unwatchable. And the guy said after it was over, he said, there's one way to market this film. He said, you market it as the worst movie ever made. He said, you'd make a fortune. <laughs> And this is the guy who's running Universal Pictures, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And all I can tell you is that the film has found its way in the underground. It's become cult speak. There are lines from that film that I hear people say almost daily when I'm out in public. It's amazing what gets made. And it is so bad. None of the people from it ever worked again, except one actor who was a nobody when it was made, who's become pretty well known. That's how it gets done. It's let's make movies. We can meet girls. We can be famous. You know, that's the mindset. And you talk one guy into it for one reason or another, and it becomes a tax write-off or it just becomes a stupid illusion of grandeur. But it gets done, and you can't fault people for that. You really, you really can't. So sometimes making movies, then it's kind of like it makes me think of that line in Finding Forrester with Sean Connery. When the kid asks him, he says, women will sleep with you if you write a book. He goes, women will sleep with you if you write a bad book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's kind of the mentality. I've taken my meetings over the years with some really shady people that literally, they don't care what you're making. They just are like, so do I get to meet girls? Do I go to a premiere? Do I get to be on set? Do I get to meet the actresses? You know, that does drive a lot of people to get movies made. Well, from bad movies to good movies, this is a question I ask people, and it's always interesting to get different people's ideas on this. When it comes to a good movie, give me the credit percentage-wise to the script, the actors, the director. You know, that's a really good question. I'll answer that as I do in my book. I think there are three scripts. There's the one that's written, the one that's shot, and the one that's actually cut. You know, it's funny. Writers, and I've been a, a writer, a professional writer. I, I pass that buck to people I think are a lot better at that than I am. But... You ask a writer, they all think your script's amazing. They think every word in its gold. 90% of the writers have never had their stuff produced or have sat in an edit bay and watched people cut stuff out that they overwrote. 
What's nice is when you get an actor or director who really fleshes out the piece and they understand the character more than the writer does. I love actors that come prepared that know more than anybody else. Like you work with certain actors like Jane Seymour or Don Olivieri, you know, certain actors will come to you and they just know more than anybody else about the character. And I think they can challenge a writer. I like to involve a writer in production that's not very common. My writers are always welcome on our shows because I think questions come up where actors say, why am I doing this? Not what's my motivation, but why am I doing this? Why am I saying this here? And it's great to just say to the right, go, go deal with that. Put out that fire, make it better. I think there are some bad scripts that have turned into good movies. And I think there are some great scripts that have turned into really bad movies. It's just about how it comes together. It's kind of like professional sports. I think there's a great parallel in professional sports to making movies. You know, how many youngsters have come up in youth sports and everybody said that's going to be the Kobe Bryant's and the Peyton Manning's, you know, how many quarterbacks and guards have been drafted that had as much or near as much hype that lived up. And I think it's very similar. It's about the system they landed. It's the coaches, it's their regiment, it's their surroundings, it's where they live, the people that are continuing to nurture Films are constantly being nurtured, as I say, from concept to delivery. I don't think it's just those three. I think when I work on a film, love it or hate it, I cast actors that I trust. For me, it's who belongs on this? Who do we want? And is this somebody I trust? And I think Sidney Lumet said it best in the book you wrote years ago when I picked it up. And I think it may have been a sense of direction. He just said, when you hire an actor as a director, you die on that sword. You basically are trusting that person with the role. And I took that to heart. And I just thought it was really important to trust an actor. And I love when an actor comes and says to me, I don't like this line. What do you think about that? And I always try to look at the domino effect. And a lot of directors and writers will kowtow to an actor and say, oh, my God, okay, give them whatever they want. You got to look at the big picture. And I think a lot of movies are saved in the edit bay. A lot of performances are saved in the edit bay. That's kind of the, we'll fix it in post, which has become, we'll fix it in marketing. But, you know, I hope I answered your question. I think it, films are constantly nurtured by people involved. You'll get a great note from an editor. I was working on a show recently that a uh, bureaucratic driven show and the editor got the script and he said, can I make some suggestions? I think we're really going to help. And God dang, was he right on things that nobody saw. None of the actors Myself as a director for hire, producers, the writers. I mean, he was finding these things in there. God, that's probably why he has an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. He he knows his stuff. And I think it it takes a village to make a good film. All right. Well, let's talk about your book for a second, What You Don't Learn in Film School. It's available on Amazon and at Barnes & Noble. It's an absolute must-have for anybody interested in making a movie. Now, obviously, we want aspiring filmmakers to go out and buy the books. We're not going to give away too much. But what are some of the biggest things that a filmmaker needs to know to succeed, but he doesn't know it when he comes out of film school? Well, I'll tell you, and if I can interject, the book is now available at Target. Oh, nice. (laughs) I just found that out last week. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I I almost fell out of my chair. So I just, I I try to tell people, you can go to target.com and get it too. I thought that was really cool. I actually bought one from there to see if it was true. And it was, I got it in a few days. Thank you for that. What was your question about it? What, What is the big takeaways for me? The book is basically 
what I've learned in my 35 years as a producer and somebody who just turned 51 and has spent 50 of those years in the industry. I never claim to know it all. I learn something new every day, but I, all I try to do is say, guys and girls, here are the mistakes that I made. Don't make them. Don't repeat them. What my mission was to look at the body of my career and realize that I've been really fortunate, love my work or hate it. I've been a steady earner in this industry since I've been basically able to sit upright. And I've learned what it takes to stay working, whether it's in the camera department, whether it's as an editor, a writer, a director, a producer. And I really get into the nuts and bolts is, you know, don't make movies for Sundance. Don't make movies to prove anything. Make them because you love it. And that passion and that desire will be infectious and you'll raise everybody up around you. You know, it's about being kind. It's about relationships. It's about the importance of knowing your craft and trusting people around you that you bring on and bringing on the right people. You know, I do a whole chapter about the mistakes so many filmmakers make of hiring the girlfriend or their, you know, buddy who's got a DSLR and a phone cord and calls him a DP. And there are so many great artists out there that you can surround yourself with that if you really take the time to seek out, you can find. My biggest thing is coming from being a judge and panelist on a lot of film festivals over the years. For me, is, is I look at so many of these things and there's five things. Take the script aside. There's five things that physically separate the sheep from the goats in a film, in an indie film. And it's, it's the locations, the cinematography, the editing, the sound, and the talent in front of the camera. And I think if you can step up all of those things, don't chintz on the sound, don't chintz on the cinematographer, the editor. And it's like, I have a friend, I talk about it in the book, who made an eight and a half dollar film. And it was well shot, it had some really big names in it. It was edited, the editing on that film was atrocious. And I said to her, I said, why didn't she get a good editor? Well, he couldn't afford one. He couldn't afford one. I said, you can get Academy Award nominated editors to moonlight on stuff for a couple of grand a week. What's the matter with you? And they said, well, how much did you spend on your rap party? Well, they spent 40 grand on the rap party. <laughs> they could have gotten a great editor for 25. And, you know, this is before social media was really what it is. And to me, that's just a wasted bullet. So I talk about things like that and how to acquire independent financing, how to find the right sales agent or distributor for your independent film and the importance of casting and the misnomers of casting and things like that. I mean, it's, it's a book that kind of covers everything except COVID because it was written before COVID uh, and things have kind of mellowed out a bit. I did have a revision for it with the COVID thing, but I was asked to hold on to it and we'll see if it's ever implemented, but I don't think it needs to be. I've interviewed a number of independent film directors and I've watched a lot of independent film in preparation for these interviews, and I feel like they all have a similar feel. And the biggest thing to me is they all look like they were shot with a home video camera. And I don't know if that is Are you accusing me of that. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> and I'm, okay. I'm curious. Like, is that just the the equipment? Is that the editing? Is that the lighting? Like, what is it that makes it look like a home movie rather than a nice, clean, crisp, you know, high production movie? Well, it could be a number of things. I don't know the films you're seeing. Right. But or you're referring to, and that's okay. I always think that it, your cinematographer needs to know his craft. The director needs to know his craft, and what lenses to use at what time are so key. That's everything in storytelling. When you're tasked with telling a story through a lens, you got to have the right lens on. But also, 
are these cameras, do they know what lenses to use at the right time? Are they lighting it well? Are they just lighting? Adam Kane, who is one of the most successful directors in television, came from a hell of a background as a cinematographer. And I remember the first time I ever worked with Adam. I said to Adam, you know, hey, I can get Panavision to do this. And he looked at me and said, I don't give a shit if it's shot on a Fisher Price, bro. It's not going to matter. So it really doesn't matter. And Adam King can back that up. Guys like Joel Layogan or Matthias Schubert, some of these independent masters of their craft. It's about the lens. It's about lighting. It's about use. It's about telling the story through the camera. Look, I got my biggest break in my career on a... $2,200 DSLR, a guy bought from Costco and returned, you know, that's a $2,500 camera. And why did Sumner Redstone and Brad Gray look at that piece of shit movie I made and said, Oh my God, this kid spent a couple million dollars on a film that we made for about nine grand because we took the time to make it look good. It was an awful movie, but it looked really good. The production value was there. And I think it's important to go back to what we said. What are those five things? I think cinematography, lens selection, lighting. So many of the amateur films are so overlit. And they, you know, are they shooting it in 24P? Are they shooting it in 30? Are they shooting it in you know, some messed up format that doesn't look professional? You can look at every film and pick it apart, and cinematography apart, and why it looks a certain way. But... For me, it's all about understanding lens selection. It's more important than anything. No, don't forget, good glass is important. I don't want to say it isn't, but, you know, yeah, wrong lens can make anything look bad. <laughs> <laughs> on the topic of indie movies, and this isn't quite, but I just watched Samaritan on uh, Amazon. It's the number one streaming film on Amazon. It's got Sylvester Stallone as like a superhero. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I heard about it. So I watched this movie, and again, I'm very critical of any movie I watch, you know, good or bad. And so I watched this film, and I thought the script was atrocious, the dialogue's awful, the locations are terrible, the acting's bad. And all I could think to myself was, if Sylvester Stallone wasn't in this movie, nobody would see it. And it's the number one streaming film on Amazon. Sure, sure. Well, uh, they paid him a lot of money to do it. Did he, did he write it or just star in it? Uh, he, I think his production company produced it. I know he writes a lot of his stuff, but I don't think he wrote this. Uh, yeah, I, Stallone's a really good writer. I mean, I, I love the work he's done over the his body of work over the years has been so good. You're probably going back to how do these things get made, but it's number one. I mean, they marketed the hell out of it. Yep. Film success, you know, has so much to do with its marketing. I haven't seen it, but I remember seeing they they've really pushed this film. They did, and that's why I watched it. And obviously, I like yeah. Sylvester Stallone, and I thought, oh, I'll check it yeah. out. You know, I'm an action well, guy. Definitely. And, and it was just funny because I've watched so many of these indies film that, that that's what it felt like to me. It felt like this was somebody's script that they wrote in film school, but they're like, hey, we got Sylvester Stallone attached to it. <laughs> and that's how it got made. It happens. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. You're not far off. I mean, I'm not saying that's what happened, but, you know, again, it goes back to relationships. And you started this interview with a question that I get asked almost daily is, you know, people see something, say, how the hell did this get made? And that's always the $64,000 question. And it's balls, it's capital, it's relationships. It's somebody obviously was better at selling something than they were at making it. I mean, it's like a piece of crap car. It's a piece of crap tool. Somebody got it made. Now, was it made well enough to endure the test of time? Well, we don't know. But films are no different. It's tough. You know, and, and it's... I. 
I don't fault filmmakers for making bad movies because it's possible anybody can fail. Uh, but sometimes you scratch your head and go, how in the blue fuck did that get made? Sorry if I'm not allowed to swear. In your oh, no, it's fine. no, it's it's like sometimes you literally say like, how? Wow. OK, but there's a market for it. I mean, you know, we saw it. So obviously we got suckered into it. Right. It was on Cinemax at 2 a.m. back in the 80s. How bad were some of those? I mean, you know, they existed. They exist. They still do. There's a market. They sold it with skin, though. There's a lot of skin in those movies. God, wasn't there just? That's how you sell it. I mean, you look at the old movies like William Cat and Shannon Tweed used to do back in the 80s. It yeah. just the jo- worst scripts in the world. But every 20 minutes, you got some skin, right? Yeah, Joan Severance. I always liked her. Oh, we always, yeah. We, you know, when I'm my Zalman King days. <laughs> Joan, yeah. <laughs> she's, she's very nice. <laughs> so, in terms of, let's say, indie movies that are done right, because I think somebody who's become kind of a god amongst indie filmmakers is Kevin Smith. And I look at the movie Clerks, which he made for $25,000, you know, $230,000 in post. And this movie obviously made $4.4 million in the box office, spawned two sequels, it launched his career. And I'm curious, what did he do right in Clerks that a lot of indie people miss? You know, I think, uh, and Kevin, I I haven't met, I will say that an actor I'm very close with, Joe Reitman and he are very good friends. And I've heard nothing but great things about him as a person. That aside, you know, for filmmakers, everybody's trying to catch lightning in a bottle. And I hate to say it, I haven't seen Clerks, no disrespect. I I haven't seen a lot of movies that I probably should But what I understand is sometimes you do something just left of left and quirky enough that just relates to people. You can look at that and say, well, it made $4 million. If that was a more expensive film, that would have been deemed a failure. But because he made it for so little and had so much success, dollars to donuts on it, and it launched a career, we look at that as a gleaming success. I mean, look at Sling Blade. You know, I like to look at films like Napoleon Dynamite, where what a quirky, weird film. And if watched with the wrong audience, I don't think it it holds up and never did. But boy, when it's the film that you're supposed to like, boy, everybody should like it. I mean, I I knew people involved with that film and saw some advanced screenings of it. You watch that in the wrong room. There's no laughing. I've seen that that film in a room before it was released. And it's, it's scary. And you kind of go, oh, geez, what, what's going on? And then, boom, why did it explode? I, I think laughter is contagious. I have so much respect for Kevin Smith. Um, what I gather is it's that Pulp Fiction. What made Pulp Fiction great? Was it Travolta and Sam Jackson driving around talking gobbly goo for endless amounts of time and a gun accidentally going off and blowing the kid's head off in the back seat? What made that film really good? Because there's some people that have trouble getting through it, but what made that film what it is? And the very little I've seen of Clerks, it seems like there's a lot of it that we can relate to, that if you've spent time in a drugstore or market, or which we all did growing up, my God, I mean, I'm Kevin's generation. I, I spent too much time at the convenience store off Reyes Adobe and Agora. I spent hours a day at that stupid place. All my friends did. I mean, we relate to something, we gravitate to it. And I think he just caught, I think he caught lightning in a bottle and did it very well. And I'm glad you brought up Napoleon Dynamite because that's actually a movie, like I said, I'm very critical of every movie I watch, right? And I'd heard a lot about it. People had seen it before I did, you know? And I went and I watched this movie 
And I sat there just stone faced for the entire film, like thinking to myself, what the hell am I watching? Yeah. But then the next day I'm working and I'm laughing about all the lines in that movie. I had to go back and watch it again. And I told somebody, I said, if you've only seen it once, then you haven't seen it. You have to see it twice. You were right. You see, that's the thing. That's what it, did you ever see the short? I didn't see the short. No, it's on YouTube. I mean, what I always try to tell people is look, go look at the short of Napoleon dynamite, black and white. Look at the short of some people call it a sling blade, which is, you know, Billy Bob's short with Molly Ringwald. That's on YouTube. Go look at Whiplash. Go look at, there's a lot of well-known films that made it that you can actually see the short version of on YouTube. It's pretty cool. But yeah, Napoleon was very much that. You get what I'm saying. If you've only seen it once, you haven't seen it. I agree. I agree. And it's funnier every time. Yeah, every single time. (laughs) Every time. And then the last question actually I have here, or the last segment I have is called Get to Know Your Guest. Three questions, which I'm going to ask you to answer as a movie fan rather than a movie producer. And the first one is, what is your favorite movie? Am I allowed to have three or has it got to be one? Sure, yeah, go for it. My my three go-tos are Jerry Maguire, Sideways, and The Black Stallion from the 80s with Mickey Rooney. And Terry Gar. So when you say go to, like you can just watch those over and over, and it's just <laughs> we. My wife and I watched Sideways thirty-seven times in a row um, <laughs> because Time Warner uh, flaked on an install that we had at a house, and the only DVD we found in a box the first day we heard they were going to be a month late was Sideways, and we both loved the film. It was sentimental to us in our lives, so. As a joke, I said, let's see if we can watch this every day until we get cable, and we did. And to this day, if it's on cable, if it's on TV, we stop everything and watch it. And I don't love the movie Sideways, and I, I love Paul Giamatti. I always have. A lot of people don't. Um, but I watched Sideways, I remember, because I like Paul Giamatti, and I, and I watched it, and I don't know why. And, and maybe you could explain it because it's your, one of your favorite movies. When he says, I am not drinking Merlot, <laughs> That scene That's makes me laugh so hard. Not what he said. Okay. I am not drinking fucking more love. Right. <laughs> like that scene always makes me laugh. I don't know why. <laughs> so, so what was your question? I'm sorry. I was so hung uh, up on the fact no, that That's fine. I was just curious, like, because you like that movie so much, like, why does that scene make me laugh so hard? Like, I don't love the movie, but that scene is just hilarious to me. And see, to me, the funniest moments aren't lines. It's Giamatti's reaction. You know, what is acting? It's reacting. I thought Alexander Payne was so brilliant. If you ever get the Blu-ray or DVD of that, I strongly suggest you watch the the actor commentary with Giamatti and Hayden Church. They break it down and talk about what Alexander did. Like when he finds out his wife is getting married on the phone, when he breaks away from dinner and he staggers and he drunk dials his ex-wife and she says, I'm getting married. Or she tells him they're having a baby. Alexander's direction to him was smile through the scene, smile through the pain. I want you to smile every chance you can. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's Paul's facial expressions is what made his career. Let's be honest. I mean, the guy's a brilliant actor, but it's his reacting to things. And it's when he's talking about his manuscript to Virginia Madsen. And she says, well, what's the name of your manuscript? And he says, uh, the day after yesterday, and she looks, she thinks for a minute, she goes, you mean today? And it's his reaction to her realization that your book should just be called today, not the day after <laughs> yesterday. And when 
you know, all that's going on with Hayden Church and, and uh, Sandra Oh. I mean, my God, there's so much going on in that film. Uh, have you only seen it once? I've only seen it one time, yeah. Okay, Napoleon Dynamite yourself and watch it a second time. Let me know what you think. Okay, I'm going to do I, that. I really, I, something about that film, it just, I laugh out loud all the time. It's, it's when Hayden Church is sitting in the spot where he gets his face smashed in by Sandra Oh for lying about getting married. And they're sitting in the spa together and, and he's like, so what happened again? Like, why did she find out I was getting married? Giamatti's tap dancing in the spa about all the bullshit. He's told to Virginia Madsen, who obviously told Sandra. And he just looks at him, you know, Hayden Church just looks at him and goes, seems fishy. It's just those, <laughs> the, the two of them are so funny. I'm sorry. I, I could recite that shit for days. Oh, no, that, that- Totally it's get it. Film. A lot of people don't like it. I've, re- I've recommended it to a lot of people. And I get, yeah, I don't see what you see in that, but okay. It's great. <laughs> the second one's along the same lines. Who is your favorite actor? You know, that's really funny. It's actors that are not who you think they would be. Um, my favorite actors, because I cut what I shoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite actors are the ones that make cutting a joy. The first brilliant actor I ever worked with and cut was Martin Sheen. Did three films with Martin. Um, he used to always ask to shoot his rehearsal. And his rehearsals were just as good as take one, two, three, four, and five. He was just so good. And then I had the pleasure of working with Michael Norrie on a film from Flashdance fame. And Michael's continuity was up there with Landon. Uh, I'm sorry, with uh, Martin Sheen. And I asked him about it. And he said, it's theater, man. We come from theater. And... That's where that continuity and that that acting with conviction comes from. Like Michael Norrie is one of the greatest actors, in my opinion, that doesn't get the kudos he should. And another one that I really respected, believe it or not, was Barry Van Dyke, Dick Van Dyke's son, who I had the pleasure and honor of working with a few years ago on a film called The Untold Story, which was originally going to be Michael Norrie. And... Um, We had trouble recasting that when Michael fell out. He went on to do a really, really great series called The Slap for NBC and God love him for it. And we were struggling to find another actor. And my producing partner at the time saw Barry at an art show and came to me and said, what about Barry Van Dyke? I was like, wow, you know, I, I know the name. I don't know the work. And I reached out to his agent and said, can you send me his reel? And they sent me his reel. The opening five shots were him doing stunts. It wasn't acting. I turned off the thing and I said, get that guy. I said, he's a fucking man. I said, Barry Van Dyke's a man, which you don't get a lot of today. He's a fucking man. You know, it's the guy that when you go to his house, he's out back chopping wood with an ax. He rides motorcycles in the desert. His kids are amazing. His kids just wrote that huge film with Harry Styles, which I just found out like a week ago. But he's a man in his acting his work in Untold Story, um, that's an actor. And you ask me who my favorites are. Those are who my favorites are. I don't buy into what Hollywood has manufactured into great actors. It's never appealed to me. To me, a great actor is somebody I've personally worked with and I see the greatness of a guy who, or a woman who knows their craft. To me, that's everything. So this may go a similar direction then. Favorite director. I miss Tony Scott's work. There's something about him and, and what he was able to get out of a story, a script. You look at his earlier stuff like True Romance or, you know, some of the films he did. There's an old adage in writing where you make a scene interesting by lighting the wick to the dynamite and hiding it 
before the scene starts. If you have two people sitting on a couch having dialogue, you know, that's going to get old after about 30 seconds. But if you have somebody come into the room and light that wick to the dynamite, hide it under the couch, those two people can sit on a couch and talk for 20 fucking days and people are going to be at the edge of their seat waiting for it to blow. There was something about Tony Scott's work that I always thought when I watched his movie that that, that lick to the dynamite has been lit. It's like, when is this going to pop? And I just, I miss his intensity. I had a f- very fortunate coming up in my career of working closely with Solomon King, who I don't think the later works that he did uh, were where his earlier was. With Zalman King, Adrian Lin, who, you know, they were brother-in-laws, I believe. Their work that they did with things like Nine and a Half Weeks or Unfaithful or Two Move Junction or Wild Orchid, Red Shoe Diaries. I mean, when you talk about telling a story with a lens and not over-dialoguing and just letting actors' sensuality and nuances tell a story, that's a director with balls. And I just don't think we get that anymore. Well, that's all I had for questions. Now, if people wanted to reach out to you, learn more about the book, talk about the film school, I know you work with some film schools. What's the best way to connect with you? The best thing to do is go to whatyoudontlearninfilmschool.com, which is the name of the book, whatyoudontlearninfilmschool.com. They can go to shanestanley.net. There's a contact button there. Um, I love hearing from people. Don't send me scripts. I'm not going to read them. We are not interested in reading your scripts. And if you've watched me on my YouTube interviews that you mentioned you saw and you've read my book, I'm not going to read your scripts. So please don't send me them. Uh, but anything else, I'd love to hear from people. Oh, fantastic. And it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I'm really glad you took the time today. I know, like I said, I know you're busy. No, we're all busy, man. As I said, you reached out, and I love when people reach out. It's, I'm very approachable. We're all equal in the grand scheme of things, right? I mean, you know, if you're on a set, as far as I'm concerned, a director and a PA are both needed. And I think in life, we we are all so fortunate when somebody calls and wants to talk to us about what it is we love doing. So I, I thank you for reaching out, being interested in listening to me yap for an hour, 10 minutes or whatever it's been. <laughs> no, of course. And actually, I actually will end on one more thing. Cause you just mentioned how we're all equal and I've always felt that way too. And like I guess I've had the chance to interview athletes and actors and uh, directors. I don't get starstruck by anybody. Cause like I said, we're all equal, you know, we all do our own thing. And so I don't get that feeling of like being a fanboy. However, I do say that if I ever got the chance to meet Garth Brooks, I wouldn't be able to contain myself. Like, you wouldn't be able to contain yourself. Is there anybody that you've met or if you thought, if I ever met this person, I don't know if I could be professional. You got time for a story? Yeah, go for it. All right. So I'm coming up through Hollyweird trying to make my way. And I was working as a, an editor's assistant on Entertainment Tonight. Well, when Viacom took over Paramount, I think it was in 93 or 94, we all got our walking papers. Like everybody in my department were, we showed up at work. It was basically, today's your last day. We're all, my bosses were packing up their boxes and putting plants and family photos in it. It was like this horrible day. I don't know what happened. Maybe there was something a lot deeper going on. They just didn't tell me because I was such an underling. But so basically my boss came to me and said, I don't care what you do today. Just stay here until your shift's over. And I worked the weird like hoot owl shift. I got there at like, four o'clock and worked until like 3 a.m. And because I was prepping all the editorial B-rolls, you know, that they would show on the show the next day. So we all were just hanging out, playing cards and jerking around. And somebody came up into my department and said, we need bodies. Who wants to work? We need bodies. And I was like, what do you need? And the guy goes, well, we're shooting this film. 
and I need some people. I said, I'll help you. I, I, I just don't sit idle. So I was like, yeah, I'll go. So I go and it's, it's clear and present danger. They're shooting clear and present danger with Harrison Ford, Willem Dafoe. And, you know, it's like, holy shit. So the first thing is they throw me in a wardrobe running and put on a suit. We need you in the background. So I'm doing background the scene where the blue van pulls up, Willem gets out and has the gun under the magazine, says, get in the van. And I'm like right there in New York City in the background. They finish shooting that. And the guy says, all right, take off your stuff, get it. go to the grip truck. We need help in grip. I mean, they were like doing pickup shots and we're understaffed. Well, fast forward, lunch comes at like midnight because it was a split shoot. And I was told by the guy who hired me, wait till everybody's done eating, to, you know, grab your food and don't be seen. So I wait in chow line, I grab food, but the director and the producer are standing right by the silverware. So I just take my plate and sneak off into the darkness of the Paramount lot. And I'm sitting on a curb eating prime rib, mashed potatoes, and green beans with my hands, like some homeless kid. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and this is like out of a really bad Kevin Smith movie, right? And he doesn't make bad movies. I mean, it's like a really bad joke out of a Kevin Smith movie. So I'm sitting on the curb, and I hear this, you got room for one more? I look up, it's Harrison Ford standing over me, asking if he could sit on the curb next to me. <laughs> I was like, sure, I slid over. He literally parks it right on the curb next to me. And we sit in silence for 20 minutes. And he's, he's a foot and a half from my room. We're eating. He's, he's got the fork and knife and the bib because he's in a suit, but I'm, I'm eating like, you know, the boy that was raised by wolves. So they start singing happy birthday to somebody over on the set, which is about you know, 100, 200 feet away. And he looks at me and he goes, uh, I got to go make an appearance. So he set his food down. He went over. It was the AD's birthday. They do a cake. They blow it out take pictures. And about five minutes later, he comes back with two plates and he hands me one of the pieces. He, one of them said birthday cake. And he says, here, I thought maybe you'd want some cake. And I said, wow, thanks. And then he pulls out of his pocket a fork and he says, sorry, kid, I can't bear to watch you eat another bite with your hands. Hands me the fork that broke the ice. We start talking bullshit for another 15, 20 minutes. Nicest guy in the world. At the end of the day, as the sun was coming up, 5.30 in the morning, we're all saying goodbye. I'm in the grip truck loading C-stands. All of a sudden I hear, Shane, where's Shane? Uh, has anybody seen Shane? I'm like, dude, that's the fugitive yelling for me. Holy shit. <laughs> I stick my head and there's Harrison. And he, I said, sir, and he turned around and he goes, Shane. He walked over and he shook my hand. I'll never forget it. I'm standing in the grip truck. He shakes my hand and he said, it was a pleasure meeting you. I hope we get to work together again someday. And he, that was it. And I was just, I mean, he was the biggest star in the world then. Yep. And that, that was the craziest Hollywood story. I mean, I think I've ever experienced. I mean, you know, I, I grew up around Hollywood. I mean, I watched the Duke pass out in a bar and watch Catherine Hepburn cut her finger with a knife. I mean, I grew up watching some crazy stuff, but that was the coolest. That was the coolest thing I've ever seen. That's a super cool story, yeah. Especially because, yeah, you know, the, I think everything I've ever heard about Harrison Ford from other interviews and whatnot is that he's very just like chill. He's very everyman. That was the experience that you go. That did that really happen? I don't tell the story a lot. I've told it a few times. I, I don't think I've ever said it in an interview or anything. It's just it's one of those things you keep close. You're like, I want to believe that happened. It's like you know when you're a kid and you wake up on Christmas Eve and you can swear you saw Santa's boots slipping up the chimney. <laughs> like I know he was here. That's kind of what that story has become to me. Like, I don't want to know that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, again, I appreciate you taking the time. This has been fantastic. And oh, thank uh, you for having me. Uh, again, everybody reach out to Shane, not with your scripts, but reach out with uh, any comments you have about the films. And uh, if you have any questions about making films, buy the book, especially. Um, but otherwise, we appreciate you guys tuning in and listening to another episode. And we will catch you again. That's all, folks. <laughs>